Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. If you're like me and trying to really understand why working class whites not only voted for Donald Trump, but continue to stick by him, then you're going to want to hear what Justin Guest has to say. Donald Trump has become a white working class symbol because he is the one who has returned them to prominence in American politics. Guest is the author of The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. And you can hear the rest of our conversation about his thought-provoking book right now. Justin Guest, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. So another Cape Up alum, Eric Liu, founder of Citizen University and the executive director of the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. You may know him. You may have heard of him. If not, I'm going to tell you why I'm bringing him up. He said on the podcast recently, quote, we're in this incredible period where whiteness and Americanness are splitting apart, and that is freaking a lot of people out. You've written an entire book about this. So I just want you to give me a thumbnail sketch of what you learned in East London and Youngstown, Ohio. Wow. You know, this is a long book to be to give you a thumbnail of. <laughs> yes, I know. But with regard to what Eric said, he's right in some ways. I think the most powerful thing that we have seen from this movement of right populism has been the consolidation and the realization of a sense of white identity, a sense of racial consciousness, group consciousness, amongst a group of people who really haven't had that before. And for, in some cases, it was because it was simply impolitic. It was not politically correct to acknowledge a sense of white identity because it was associated with supremacists who were the primary pursuers of that kind of identity. But in other cases, it wasn't pursued because whiteness in the United States is historically an amalgamation. What is it to be white in the United States? We don't have any sense of authenticity or heritage in the United States, white people. It could be Hungarian. They could be Italian. They could be Irish. They could be Jewish. They could be Lebanese. They could be Spanish. What does it mean to be white? And yet after this election, there is this sense of whiteness that has come out in a very ugly way, I think. And and you got this and you came to learn this because you spent three months just living with, talking to, exploring Youngstown, Ohio. And you did the same thing in Great Britain in East London, three months there. And again, the title of your book is The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. And there's a thread that runs right from Youngstown, Ohio, to East London, Great Britain, all the way back. And that is this sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, of, of the white working class in those two cities on two different continents there is a sense that they are losing something. And it's not just losing jobs or losing their country, but really losing the sense of being at the center of everything. Losing status is basically what, they, what they're grieving over. That's right. No, they are losing control. They're losing a sense of positionality in the countries that they once defined from their perspective. 
And and really, uh, one of the principal arguments of this book and my research is that the politics of white working class people across both continents, and this includes also countries in Europe, is the politics of nostalgia. This is a politics that is consumed by the past. And just as a convenient example, let's just think about President Trump's campaign slogan, Jonathan, for a second here. Make America great again. Imagine if he never used the word again. Imagine it was vote for Donald Trump, make America great. He would have lost. He would have lost. By using the word again, he made the election a referendum on America's past. Hmm. If you thought the past was great and you think you've lost something since then, you're going to vote for Donald Trump. But for so many people in the United States, you know, and you don't necessarily have to be an ethnic minority, but particularly ethnic minorities and also cosmopolitan liberals, very aware of the social ills and oppression of American history. The past didn't look that great. And so he made the election this kind of referendum on what American history was about and how that will influence what its future looks like. In many cases, I think when some of us dismiss the possibility of reestablishing that past, it also sometimes comes across to my subjects as dismissing that past holistically. And I think that any conversation with white working class people in America's heartland, in America's Rust Belt, in our agrarian societies, what's left of them, has to revere the past before prodding people into the future. And I think that cosmopolitans, urbanites, ethnic minorities, they're so futuristic in their vision for American politics that it seems to dismiss the past in many ways. And so the conversation never even gets started with a group of people who are consumed by that history. Yeah, Make America Great Again was just like, what do you mean? How far back are we we going to go? Because anything after, say, 1965 legally wasn't so hot. But to get to to your point, in your book, you write, poor white people are subject to the same elite classism that subordinates poor ethno-cultural minorities, but due to their status as an in-group, Poor whites exist without widespread recognition of the structural circumstances that entrench their deprivation. That, to me, reading that right there, it, it's a vice grip that they're in from, from their point of view. And it's ones like, you know what? I see that. I completely get that. Yeah, let's just sum it up, right? What's your excuse for not achieving? That's basically the way a lot of people treat white working class people. Why can, you know, what's your excuse? You can't you know, rely on these legacies of structural disadvantage. You, know, you can't cite decades of uh, discrimination for housing and jobs and you know, access to public services. What's your excuse? And so it has become okay to become classist against poor white people. And they sense it. They hear us use words like hillbilly, redneck. In the Britain, they use the word chav. In Australia, they use the word bogan. There are, almost every society has a word for poor white people. And it is infused with that sense of judgment and subjectivity. Well, I mean, if, uh, you quote Father Candiotti uh, in, in your book, and he said something that I think a lot of, a lot of listeners will go, yeah, damn right. And he, he, uh, you quote him as saying, many working class white people are down today 
because they realize that they are becoming the very people they used to criticize. First of all, I should clarify that that's an alias. So all the subjects, <laughs> all the subjects in my book are veiled with an alias uh, mm-hmm. because of research ethics reasons. But yes, that's exactly right. And, and that is actually one of the most principal motivations for race backlash in American politics and I think also in European politics today. It, you know, after slavery ended in the United States, there was very little that separated black folks from white folks. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? You're all poor. You're all agrarian in that era. And you all are, you know, really don't have many future prospects. What separates you? Much of white working class politics has been to create distinction with a group that they thought they were above. And so, so much of American history has been white voters seeking to reinstate ways to subordinate people of ethno-religious and ethno-racial difference. And I don't think we can view the most recent election independent of the fact that this is coming off the heels of eight years of the first black president and with the prospect of four more years and possibly eight years of the first female president. These are disorienting and they are heralds of the demographic change that this country is facing right now. And it's discomforting many people. So then how do you explain? Because I would have to think that a lot of the, maybe you know this for a fact, many of the people you talk to or folks that they know voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and maybe again in 2012. What was what was the switch? How can they go from voting for the first black president to voting for the first president to run an openly racist, xenophobic, misogynistic campaign for president. There are a lot of reasons here. So first off, not all Trump voters are the same. Right. I I authored a piece for Politico a few months ago that was called The Two Types of Trump Voters. To be fair, that was pretty simplistic. There's hundreds of types of Trump voters. But a key difference is that not all of them are nationalist and authoritarian in these ways. For many of the voters who I interviewed in Ohio in particular, yeah, a lot of them did vote for Barack Obama twice. And the reason why they voted Donald Trump is a mix of desperation and the fact that Donald Trump is the first politician in over a generation to make a deliberate appeal for their votes. He is he was the ringleader of this sense of group consciousness amongst white working class people going back to the very beginning of this podcast. He is the he created that sense of consciousness with his message that was so directly appealing to poor white voters. And the desperation comes from the fact that a lot of these voters have supported Republicans previously. They've protested. They've sat elections out. They voted for lots of Democrats. Nothing seems to work. For the folks in Ohio who I interviewed, the Great Recession did not start in 2007. It started in 1977. In 1977, because of the oil crisis, because of because steel? Of the, because, because of the collapse of manufacturing in the United States. In overall. And in Youngstown, Ohio, the exact date it started was September 19th, 1977. Because on that date, the first steel mill in Youngstown shut its doors, locking its employees out without any notice. And it set into motion a domino effect of closure after closure after closure. Twelve steel mills shut. 50,000 jobs lost in five years. They never recovered. They've never recovered. 
Youngstown is a class of city that I refer to in the United States and abroad as a post-traumatic city. These places have endured serious trauma, economic trauma, but falling from that social trauma. In Youngstown, after those five years, those nightmarish five years, domestic abuse rates rose, divorce rates skyrocketed, they had a suicide epidemic, and Youngstown, Ohio, within a decade, became the murder capital of the United States. We cannot disentangle the economic from the social here. One of the things you you said to me, because I, you know, in writing a piece about about the white working class and what ended up being, it seemed like a review of your book um, because it's it's that good. And in trying to understand how is it possible that the president's support among his diehard diehard supporters, why is it unshakable? And you got to it in in your previous answer. But one of the things you told me in an email to me. Um, in addition to you, you said that Donald Trump was the first president, presidential candidate to make a direct appeal for their votes. Uh, but you also made the point of saying his, meaning Donald Trump, Donald Trump's at- attraction is therefore not merely substantive, but rather symbolic. So it will take more than canceling a social program to shake their allegiance. So, you know, whether Trump care becomes the law of the land, whether or not he brings coal jobs back or reopens steel mills, that's beside the point. That's right. That's right. So much of Donald Trump's politics is symbolic. So the the his purpose in many of his statements and policy visions is not necessarily practical in the sense that they're actually achievable or feasible. They're symbolic in the sense that this is what people want to hear. And if it doesn't get done, it's almost beside the point because he is elevating the the prerogatives of his constituents to the national stage after having been relegated to the fringes of American politics for decades. And so Donald Trump has become a white working class symbol because he is the one who has returned them to prominence in American politics. Earlier, you you said that there are all sorts of all sorts of Trump voters and that it would be a mistake to lump them all in as being white nationalists. But if all he is is a symbol and he's giving voice to Things that they've always they've always wanted to hear is I used to love and cringe reading in the paper people saying he says he tells it like it is and he says things that I can't say or that I wish I could say which was like a not even a dog whistle it was a bullhorn to a lot of people which was well what did you want to say how openly racist did you want to be or or xenophobic given what you said earlier and what you're saying now how is it possible to separate the uh, the sort of like white nationalist message from um, from those voters, it's really impossible to disentangle the threads of race relations and resentment through the economics of mm-hmm. Trumpism. Right? It, it, they are intertangled; they're intertwined together, and so that makes them inextricable. But for many people. The sense of having a voice suddenly after feeling voiceless for so long is powerful. And so that is the symbolic importance of him to their lives. And so were they to vote him out of office, unless there is someone else who is going to seize the baton and be that voice going forward, it's not in their cultural interest to vote against him, no matter how little he has delivered to actually help them in any kind of material way. You know, one of the 
my favorite uh, anecdotes from my time in the field, and I write about this in the book, as you'll probably remember, is that a number of my respondents would preface statements to me by saying, now, I'm not a racist. Oh, my God. But... I, was, I'm so, I was just about to ask you about this. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. All right. So they would preface their statements by saying, now, I'm not a racist, but dot, dot, dot. And, of course, many of the things that they would say to me were very racist. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, my book there. is pretty profane and, and obscene in certain places, uh, given the things that people say. But in other cases, what they were about to tell me had nothing to do with race, at least not obviously, not overtly about race. And so I began to ask myself, what on earth, why are they doing this? Have they gone through some kind of sensitivity training from Jonathan Capehart? Like, I don't know what's going on. Hardly. So eventually what I realized is that the way they understood racism is different from the way we understand racism as this very powerful social concept to make us aware of double standards, to make us aware of, of what we say and how we think and whether it's been influenced by these double standards and bigotry. For them, racism has, became, has become an instrument of silence. It is a way of invalidating people. By saying that someone's a racist, it means they cease to matter. Don't listen to them. They've been disqualified by their racism. And so white working class people are really attracted to Donald Trump and also in the UK, Nigel Farage and Marine Le Pen and Gerrit Wilders in the Netherlands when they claim that their supporters are the silent majority. But that's actually not quite right. They're not the silent majority. They're the silenced majority. Hmm. And many of them feel silenced by what Donald Trump and Nigel Farage have referred to as the political correctness brigade. And so when Donald Trump went up in Cleveland and said messianically, I am your voice, that's precisely what people heard. And so when people said to me, now I'm not a racist, but what they were actually saying to me was, Listen to what I'm about to tell you and don't dismiss me. Having this conversation, you've listened to them. I, of course, would listen to them. But I can imagine the listener thinking, "Okay, well, Justin's listened. You've listened. We've all been listening now since the November election. Don't they have a responsibility to cross over and go from the horrible language and and concepts that they talk to you about to see how what they're saying or their worldview is can be seen equally as silencing, disrespectful, and racist. If it's incumbent upon us to empathize with with the white working class, isn't that a isn't that a two-way street? Once once they once they feel like they've been listened to. Yes. And it's going to take us, it's going to take politicians, it's going to take organizers to go to them and have these discussions. But these are discussions that are inherently uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. They're inherently uncomfortable to have. And most people don't want to have them. They can get elected, you know, live their lives peacefully without engaging in these discussions, without creating this transcendent moment in American politics where we actually can find unity across the working classes. But this is a problem that is age old. Marx discussed this problem with the Irish workers in Britain and how the aristocrats in Britain would divide poor people by pitting them against each other, one ethnicity against the other. This is in the 19th century. It is hard to make 
people understand, and politicians included, that there are no white working class problems. There are no brown working class problems. There are no black working class problems. There are problems. Debt, health care, education. Generally speaking, these are big problems in American society that don't necessarily see mm-hmm. race. Right. I mean, when you when people started talking about immediately after the election, white working class, white working class, white working class, more than a few African-Americans on my Twitter feed, on my Facebook page, even sidling up to me saying, if I have to read one more story or hear one more thing about white working class, what about working class? They're the same. The, the, the issues that, the, that they're complaining about are the issues we've been complaining about for generations. Why can't there just be a message to the working class of America? Here's what we're going to do. Because it's politically expedient to not do so. Republicans have profited from pitting white poor people against ethnoculturally different poor people, people of color. They have benefited from this. And Democrats have benefited from reminding ethnoculturally different people that they are somehow exceptional and from making them special parts of their coalition. And in many classes, the Democrats are – it's even more of a problem given their history, their legacy of being pro-union and being pro-working class because since the DLC in the late 1980s and early 1990s, they have aligned themselves with the financial class that would not tolerate the kind of you know, semi-socialist politics of the Democrats' past. And so it has been convenient for both parties to not pursue a transcendent working class coalition. You know, I was watching a, a panel discussion um, that was being held by the organization Third Way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our demo- demo- <laughs> it's demo- demography destiny. And um, one of the things they kept coming back to was the problem with the Clinton campaign and with Democrats and progressives in general is that, you know, those aren't our people. So if they were not part of the the Obama coalition, sort of generally speaking, um, if they were white working class, if they were part of the religious community, if they were any other thing, those aren't our voters. We, We don't need to talk to them. Do you think that Democrats have, have learned the lesson? Or is it too soon to tell? I mean, we are only just months away uh, a- after, after the election. Yeah, so you're shaking your head, no. <laughs> there, there are a lot of very defiant Democrats. It's hard to change political institutions. And there are a lot of defiant Democrats who just think it's a matter of time uh, before this coalition matures. Um, But it's just not that simple. And I don't think that you can redline vast regions of this country. There are 660 U.S. counties that are 90 percent or 85 percent white and below the median income in the United States. Of those poor white American counties, 660 of them, how many did Hillary Clinton win? The answer is two. The Democratic Party is redlining these regions of the country and saying, we have no chance, there's no point in trying. That's just not a way to be a mainstream party. And as a result, the Democrats don't look like a mainstream party right now. They look like a coastal 
urban party because that's effectively where all their constituents are based. And so they have to shake this kind of complacency. It's hard to shake this complacency, though, because I do think that there are many groups inside the Democratic Party, inside of this coalition of environmentalists and, you know, Latinos and hippies and lawyers and, you know, people who drive electric cars. <laughs> there, there are many people in there who like the privileged status that the Democratic Party gives to certain ethnic groups. The Democratic Party, in many ways, in my, from my perspective, feels like they have to mention them by name in speeches to kind of check off these boxes of each of these various constituencies in their coalition. And to promote the interests of white working class people to a tantamount level feels like it's cheapening. It's like they haven't had it as bad as we have. But this kind of argument about who's had it worse is destined to spiral downward. And nobody wins those arguments. Everybody loses when we start to get into these arguments about who's had it tougher. You, in an email um, uh, to me, I keep reading your quotes, back, your quotes back to you, but they are so good. I want them to be a part of the discussion. You, you said, because I was asking what can be done, and you said the more important question is what Democrats and moderate Republicans have planned, have planned for white working class people when some finally do realize President Trump has betrayed their interests like so many political figures before. And you ask the uh, two relevant questions. Will there be space in their coalitions? What substance and symbolism can they offer this complicated, frustrated, large constituencies? And you end by saying, as long as the answers remain unclear, even an inept, corrupt and treacherous Trump administration will appear better than the alternative. I mean, that's that's a clear, cogent analysis, but that's also rather damning, damning of the administration, dam- damning and damning of the electorate. I mean, the, th- the way things appear to be going, it's just not possible, at least in the America I, I learned about in school and came to believe that such an administration cannot possibly win another four years. But it can. It could. It could. It could. I mean, it certainly it certainly can maintain its support because what we've seen, I think, from the 2016 election is not only the power of the Trump campaign and, and administration to appeal to this particular constituency of white working class people, but more importantly, it has demonstrated the part the power of partisanship because so many Republicans, moderates among them, held their nose and voted for Trump. And I think that a lot of this is related to, and this can't be discounted, the unfavorables towards Hillary Clinton. She was so polarizing. The Democrats have to find someone who is not so polarizing, and then you really have a true test of Trump's appeal. Because before the election even started, Hillary had 45% unfavorable ratings. That's really hard to come get over. A lot of people on that jury had already had the verdict in their head. Six members of the jury, basically, five members of the jury had had the verdict already in mind by the time Hillary began her closing argument. Right. So she could only speak to seven members of the jury to begin with. So if the power of partisanship holds on these moderate Republicans, 
then Donald Trump has a chance. The question is whether Democrats can make an appeal to moderate Republicans and whether the Democrats can steal back some of these white working class folks who left the Democratic Party in order to support Donald Trump. What's the big takeaway after your three months in East London, your three months in Youngstown, Ohio? Do you think it's possible that that nostalgia, that um, reverence for the past, um, that silence that the folks you talk to uh, feel they've been suffering in, can all of that be ameliorated? And have we even begun to start along that what is definitely a very long process? For many white working class people, and this is going to be controversial, for many white working class people, not all of them, but for many, you have a community of people who are advanced in age, whose skill set is for a different economy, who are living in communities that are losing population, losing resources. And so in many ways, the only way of addressing their plight is a form of political hospice care. These are communities that are on the paths to death. And the question is, how can we make that as comfortable as possible? But what we also need to think about is how can we prevent this from being perpetuated and from reinforcing this structural inequality in our country, this immobility, this ossification of a a class hierarchy that has led to people abandoning their faith in the American dream? How can we truly level the playing field? And what's so remarkable, Jonathan, is that that is the language that many of my white working class respondents used. It's the language that we've heard the civil rights movement use, leveling the playing field, finding equality. How can we make an America that has greater mobility, independent of your race, independent of your ethnicity? How can we create avenues for people who start off in these communities in hospice care to live vibrant, and dynamic lives of possibility. And I think that so much actually returns to education. And this is something that I really didn't get into in the book. So this is sort of bonus chapter 10 with uh, (laughs) K-pop. But education is so central to all this because education is that, that avenue to mobility, intergenerational mobility. It is, it allows a steel town to raise children who are not necessarily predestined for manufacturing. And yet, poor communities in our country have poor schools. And rich communities have rich schools that prepare their children for the digital era, for a high technology service sector. And so our system of education is not allowing us to create a break, an intervention, where we actually prevent these communities destined for death to be revived. 
Justin Guest, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at George Mason University's Shah School of Policy and Government and author of The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. Thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Other, Mixed Race in America, a mini-series of stories to make you think about race, identity, and what it means to be an American. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.